Hey there, everybody, and welcome on into episode 14 of The Sco Show. Proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield. Happy to be back in the big chair and back with you, my dear friends. Today's show is another loaded episode with a fantastic guest. First, we're going to have to at least touch on the Antonio Brown news. And yes, I will be putting the lawyer hat back on. Then we're going to get nerdy as we look ahead to Miami and talk some more about everybody's favorite route concept, Hoss Y. Juke. Then I'll sit down with Kyle Krabs, who you know from Twitter as at Grinding the Tape. And for his great work over at the Draft Network, but he's also a longtime Dolphins fan, the lead editor of the Dolphins Wire, and the host of the Fin It to Win It podcast, where he also covers the Dolphins. But before we get to all of that, your usual cavalcade of reminders. Please do follow along with the hijinks on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Please do check out the work at a number of places, including Inside the Pylon, Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, Pro Football Weekly, and that triumvirate of SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, where I co-host the QB's Go Show with the Honorable Michael J. Kist, and of course, Pat's Pulpit, where you can find this podcast along with some film breakdowns. Also, don't forget you can be part of the ongoing discussion and conversation on the Sco Show's Slack channel. I'm lucky and honored to have so many people over there talking Pat's constantly, and you can hit me up for an invitation via Twitter or at email, mark.schofield at insidethepylon.com. So, we got to do it. We got to talk for a second about the Antonio Brown situation. If you have not heard this, and I'd be stunned if you have not, a civil complaint was filed against Patriots' new wide receiver Antonio Brown in federal court. Now, the lawsuit alleges sexual assault and rape. He has been accused of sexually assaulting and raping his former trainer, Brittany Taylor, according to a lawsuit filed in the Southern District of Florida. That's, again, federal court. In the lawsuit, Taylor, whom Brown met while attending Central Michigan, alleges the recent Patriots acquisition, Tony Brown, sexually assaulted her in three separate incidents between June of 2017 and May of 2018. Now, Brown, through his lawyer, Darren Heitner, denied those allegations in a statement on Tuesday night. If you go to Pat's pulpit, Oliver Thomas has a great sort of timeline of what we know to this point, such as the NFL considering putting Brown on the commissioner's exempt list. The Patriots were reportedly unaware of the allegations against Brown, that the Allegheny County District Attorney will reportedly look into these allegations. And he he released a statement sort of clarifying that report, saying that the incident that the district attorney referenced earlier involving Antonio Brown did not involve the incident in the federal lawsuit. That involved the conversation with somebody else about possible child endangerment. So the federal lawsuit allegations are not going to be invested criminally. That's a little minor distinction that we needed to clarify. But I want to talk about the allegations in the sense of what Brown is facing. I'm not going to dive into the allegations. You can read the, the civil complaint that has been filed against him. I would advise that you do so. The allegations, if proven to be true, are severe and would necessitate action on behalf of both the league and the team against Brown if they are proven to be true. But that's sort of what I want to focus on. And when I woke up Wednesday morning, I got a tweet from at Dominic Marie at the number one D-O-M-I-N-I-C underscore going to need at Mark Schofield to put his lawyer hat back on and break down what's going to happen with AB going forward after last night's news. And that's kind of what I'm going to do in a sense. I'm not going to get in so much to the allegations themselves and opine on whether they're true or not. Again, if they're true, 
if they're proven to be true, they would necessitate action because the allegations against him are serious and they seem to be criminal in nature and they would require action both by the league and the team probably to walk away from Antonio Brown. But what he is facing is a civil lawsuit. And so it's important to understand what he's facing. There is a distinction when it comes to what's called the burden of proof here. This isn't a a criminal complaint. This is an episode of Law and Order. It's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This is a civil allegation. This is a civil complaint. Now, that's basically where my legal practice was. And so it was all, or 90% of it, 95% of it was in the civil realm. The minor amount of criminal work I did was mostly like helping friends with traffic tickets and things like that. In a civil jury trial, which is where I tried my cases, either in front of a judge or a jury, you know, jury trial versus bench trial, you dealt with a different burden of proof, which is beyond a, pon- beyond a preponderance of the evidence. So the plaintiff, in this case, the former trainer, would have to prove beyond a preponderance of the evidence that Antonio Brown engaged in the conduct that she alleges he engaged in. What does that mean? Well, when I would stand up in front of a jury at the end of a case, you would make your closing argument. And this would come after jury instructions where the judge would read the list of their actual instructions, like what you would have to find, how you conduct your deliberations, things like that. He would also get into, he or she, the judge, would get into the burden of proof. And the judge, he or she, would say, you have to find beyond preponderance of the evidence all the allegations that are contained in this complaint against the defendant. And when I would get up in front of the jury as a plaintiff's lawyer, defendant plaintiffs, that's some of the work I did initially, and then later I was a defense attorney for companies and things like that, I would write out at the top of the whiteboard during my presentation the burden of proof. I would say beyond a preponderance of the evidence. I would say, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. It means more likely than not. I would write it out in quotations, more likely than not. What does that mean? And then I would write 51 slash 49. It's not... Beyond a reasonable doubt, which is like 99 to 1, 99%, you believe the person committed this crime. It's 51-49. It's a very low standard in the civil litigation realm. More likely than not, 51-49. You don't have to, to put it into sort of sports parlance. You don't have to blow them out, you know, that beyond a reasonable doubt. You just got to win. You just got to be that much more convincing that the defendant did the actions that he or she was accused of. That's what Brown is facing. And so while it's not criminal in a sense, the standard that the plaintiff has to prove is lower. So he faces a tougher fight here in the civil realm. So I did want to sort of work through that. That's what Antonio Brown is facing. Now, this could change depending on what the DA might do here. If they do open an investigation, do it. we don't know that as of the time I'm sitting down here. And if you know a criminal complaint is eventually opened or not or whatever, that remains to be seen. But in the civil realm, that's what he faces. So I just wanted to touch on that. Now let's talk about some actual football. We're going to talk Haas Wide Juke. Why am I bringing this up? Well, I love the process of a sort of advanced scouting. It's one of my favorite things to do. When I first started writing about football over at Inside the Pylon, the site that actually grew into Inside the Pylon, I believe we called it Social Football Central back in the day, and then Football Central, and then Inside the Pylon. One of the things I loved to do each week was a Know Your Enemy series where I would sort of break down just 
person by person and eventually grew into just concepts, but what the Patriots would be facing that upcoming week. And so I love sort of watching the next week's opponent. I will always like sit down and watch, like I'm going to sit down and watch all the AFC and the NFC East teams. I'm going to watch the AFC East teams week to week. I'm going to always like have a building database of stuff on all their future opponents. So when it gets to be like week 14 and they're playing Team X, I'll have watched multiple games so I can just dive right into what these, the, what to what the Patriots will be facing that week. So I sat down and watched Baltimore-Miami, and I came away impressed with a number of different things in this game. One was Lamar Jackson. He played in fantastic football. The other thing I noticed was that he was running Hoss wide juke. Now, if you are unfamiliar with that, I would direct your attention to Super Bowl 53 and the three straight plays that the Patriots ran on the one and only touchdown drive of the game. They ran what was called Hoss wide juke three times in a row. Now, what Hoss is, again, many of you have probably heard this. Some of you, this might be new. I hope there are new listeners here. Hoss is a two-receiver concept, a hitch on the outside, and a seam from the slot receiver, the inside receiver. Hoss wide juke is a mirrored Hoss concept where you get that hitch-seam combination on both sides of the field with a juke route over the middle by that third receiver to one side of the formation. And that was usually Julian Edelman. And that juke route is you start inside on a slant and you can either sit down, find space versus zone, or run across the formation against man or break back to the outside if you get walled off by, say, an inside linebacker. The Patriots ran that three times in a row, leading to Gronkowski's final catch as a Patriot, the Sony Michelle touchdown, banner number six. The Ravens ran Haas wide juke and Haas variants a number of times in this game. And, and, and Lamar Jackson had tremendous success throwing it. He had a touchdown pass to Willie Sneed where they ran Haas wide juke. What did the Dolphins do on this play? Well, as they did often in this game, they stacked the box, they sent pressure, they tried to turn Lamar Jackson into a quarterback. We're going to talk with Kyle Krabs, as you heard earlier, in a moment. He's going to tell you how they wanted to sell out, stop the run, and make Lamar Jackson beat him. And beat him, he did. And on this touchdown pass to Willie Sneed, they play cover zero where they bracket coverage over the tight end who's running the juke route, Mark Andrews. And Lamar Jackson has his choice of the two seam routes. It's either Snead on the right, Justice Hill, the running back on the left. Both are open. Now he throws to Snead. And what I love about what Jackson does on this play is even though there's really no free safety in the middle of the field to manipulate, he looks to the left, looks to Justice Hill and his seam route, then comes back knowing that Snead is open. So you see Haas wide juke there. Later in the game, they on a third down in the second half, they run Haas, Haas again. You get the hitches on the outside, the seams again. Only this time they have Hill in the backfield, and he runs sort of a sit route. I call it Haas a check down in a piece, and there will be a piece on Pat's pulpit where you can see this. Or you could call it Haas a sit, but it's the same thing. Hitches on the outside, seams, and then a little curl route from the back out of the backfield over the football. And this time... The Dolphins show pressure again. They show them like they're going to blitz and play cover zero, but they drop into a straight cover three, spot drop into cover three. We talked about spot dropping last week. Lamar Jackson now has the ideal situation to run this play against because you get that single free safety in the middle of the field. You can look him off, make him move to one of the seam routes and throw the other. Here he makes an anticipation throw to the tight end running the seam route, and they move the six on third and 14. Lamar Jackson running Haas against Miami makes me think we're going to see a ton of Haas, whether it's Y-Juke or Z-Juke or 
whatever variation they want to run against the Dolphins on Sunday because the Dolphins certainly couldn't stop it against Baltimore. Now you're going to get a team that considered it, considers Haas and the variations of it a core element of their offense in the New England Patriots. They've been running it for years. They ran it three straight times in the Super Bowl, and I think we're going to see a ton of it on Sunday against Miami. So that's enough for me. Up next, Kyle Krabs will join us. He's going to talk about what it's like to be a Dolphins fan right now, what he's seen so far from this organization, the approach that they're taking, whether Josh Rosen is the answer or not. We're going to talk some draft stuff and a whole lot more. That's all ahead on Episode 14 of The Scope Show. And welcome back to episode 14 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great people at SB Nation and cannot be more excited about our next guest. He is all over your timeline, all over the world of football media. I think I've got all the titles right here. He's a senior draft analyst for the Draft Network. He's the lead editor for the Dolphins Wire. He's the co-host of Draft Dudes with the venerable Joe Marino. And he is, of course, the host of the Fit It to Win It podcast. And he is, as always, grinding the tape on the timeline. He is the one and only Kyle Krabs. My friend, buddy, how you doing? There have been better days in my (laughs) life than this week of the aftermath of Lamar Jackson, which, before we talk about the Dolphins at all, uh, I do want to tip the cat to Lamar Jackson. Right. Because there are going to be the naysayers that point to, well, they played the Dolphins, and they're not wrong. They played the Dolphins on Sunday. But Lamar Jackson made throws in that football game that running backs or slot receivers don't make. Right, And right. he, I am going to really enjoy watching him grow and develop and blossom into a quarterback as somebody who uh, I had him just on the fringe in my top 32. Right. For the 2018 NFL Draft, so I, I acknowledge there's some some inherent risk with him and, and some of the inconsistencies with his accuracy, but a really special physical talent, not just as a runner, but as a thrower, too, and you got to see that on Sunday. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about Malar, Lamar a little bit later, but why don't we just go there, because I was impressed... The sort of scramble drill touchdown that he threw where he led his receiver back to the middle of the field. Mm -hmm. Some of the eye manipulation we saw from him looking off safeties, even when there weren't safeties to look off because guys might have been out of position. So I want to ask you this, Kyle. Was his big day a function of his growth as a quarterback, the Dolphins' defense, or perhaps a bit of both? It was definitely both. I think Brian Flores came into the contest and said, well, this is a team that's got speed in the backfield. Uh, They've got... Mark Ingram, who they brought in as a power component to run gap concepts. We are going to dare Lamar Jackson to beat us with his arm. And guess what? He didn't just beat you. He spanked you. He, he, the, and the Dolphins defense refused to make adjustments, which to me was the most stunning part. And you had reporters talking to Minka Fitzpatrick after the game, who was a first round pick in 2018 as well. And he said, you know, re- regardless of, you know, there, there were some times where we weren't necessarily put in the best position, but coach is going to call whatever he wants to call. And we have to execute. And it was kind of like this backhanded comment of we weren't put in the best success, best position to be successful because they decided they wanted to, to occupy the box and inside 10 yards. And they left everybody on islands. And that's the, the beauty of this Ravens offense and what the Ravens did this offseason in, in trying to pick the minds of college coaches that have run these pace and space type offenses and trying to accentuate Lamar's strengths as a passer. And you kind of saw all of that come to fruition where 
Baltimore's game plan on how they want to improve Lamar as a passer really meshed well with the Dolphins' refusal to try and take away the pass game because they, they decided they wanted Lamar to have to beat him, and he beat him every single time they had the ball. You know, Kyle, staying with that defense, Brian Flores drew praise in New England for his aggressive approach. Some of the veterans loved his pressure schemes. It seems like Sunday, like you said, they wanted to stop the run. They were aggressive at times, left guys on islands. I saw a lot of cover one, cover zero, and it clearly didn't work too well. Those were some of my takeaways, but what were your takeaways from watching this Miami defense overall? Uh, I think the question that I came away with the most was listening to Brian Flores talk all preseason and and all summer and ever since he was hired is talking about putting his players in the best position to be successful. I'm questioning if this coaching staff is actually trying to win football games. Really? Because they have Sam McGuavin, who is a CFL linebacker, playing stand-up outside linebacker on the edge. And they're tasking Raekwon McMillan, who only played 20-something snaps, with taking coverage reps as an off-ball linebacker, which is not where he played relative to Sam McGuavin in the preseason. It's the same thing with the offensive line. They traded Laramie Tunsil, and then they took Jesse Davis, who has literally been spent the entire preseason at right tackle, and they moved, ton- or they moved Jesse Davis from right tackle to left tackle, and then they took Danny Isidore, who they acquired a week before the season started, and flipped him out, for the right guard, so you had, and then they, and then they moved Julian Davenport, who's been a left tackle for his career, over to the right side. So it, it was just this really confusing. You know, Rashad Jones played like forty six percent of the snaps, and I don't understand, regardless of what your scheme is or your philosophy, how Rashad Jones, who's a ten year pro and has been named to two Pro Bowls, isn't a player with a, a, a team and Brian Flores' philosophy running so many sub-packages that involve so many defensive backs, how you can't find space for Rashad Jones on the field. So for me, I, I was just very confused with monkey see, or do what I say, not what I do. And Brian Flores said all the right things, but then once we got to this game plan and this implementation – there were guys left and right that were not used in ways that would have put them in the best position to be successful, including uh, Micah Fitzpatrick. So the, even the cornerstone players are victim of this, not just the guys who maybe are getting phased out or anything. You know, it's interesting you sort of phrase it that way, Kyle, because there are some sort of questions that maybe Miami sort of tank it for two or, or however you want to phrase that. Do you think that that is the approach here, that they're just, look, we're playing for a draft spot? Well, I don't think Brian... I, I, th- I think I know that's the plan for a fact. There was a report that came out from Barry Jackson, the Miami Herald, uh, about a week before the season started, shortly after the aftermath of the Laramie Tunsil trade that said uh, the plan, st- uh, a coach had talked to Stephen Ross about their coaching search back in January. And Ross had told this coach, our plan is not to contend in 2019 and to be in position to draft a quarterback in 2020 and then build around that player. So this has apparently been in the work since before Brian Flores was even hired in Miami. And then Brian Flores comes out and says, I refuse to acknowledge the concept of tanking. It's disrespectful to the game, so on and so forth. And and I really think that was the plan until the Dolphins finally got the offer that they couldn't refuse for Laramie Tunsil because it, it almost felt like they looked at the roster and I thought the roster you know, at the beginning of August could have won six games this year. Mm-hmm. 
And it's almost like they looked at it and they agreed. And then they're like, all right, well, let's trade Laramie Tunsil. Let's cut all these guys that we brought in. Uh, Nate Orchard's a great example, a defensive end who was drafted in the second round by the Cleveland Browns. He kind of flopped there. He bounced around the league a little bit. They brought him into Miami, and Orchard was awesome. He was their best pass rusher this preseason. And he led the NFL in preseason sacks. He had four sacks, some against third stringers, some against second stringers, some against first stringers. And he got cut. Like, that's the kind of guy that you're supposed to be taking a lottery ticket flyer on to bring in a guy who's 26 years old, a former top 50 pick, and coach and develop players, which Brian Flores talked about. So I really feel like the plan here, this is all kind of coming to fruition. It's almost like they they did a self-assessment right before the two weeks before the season started and and realized – our long-term goals here. We, if Brian Flores is going to try and coach and win games, we're going to compromise it. You mentioned sort of getting into a position to draft a quarterback in next year's draft and build around. At the same time, this team just acquired Josh Rosen. I was a Rosen guy. I seem to recall you being a Rosen guy. Mm-hmm. He comes in and obviously throws an interception. It does seem like we are trending towards Rosen perhaps having to move on yet again when a team drafts an early quarterback. I would hate to see that, but where do you sort of stand on the Josh Rosen versus 2020 quarterback question for Miami? I would I would really like to see them give Rosen a fair chance, but it, it just really seems like it's not going to happen. Now, I'll say this for Josh. Anybody who was a proponent of Josh Rosen before the 2018 NFL draft probably pointed to his experience in a pro-style offense, mm-hmm. uh, his mentality as an NFL caliber passer and throwing receivers open and being effectively pro ready especially versus a lamar jackson or a josh allen i think that's a fair statement that's pretty much what i wrote like verbatim so yeah so josh rosen gets to miami after three seasons at ucla and one season with the arizona cardinals and the dolphins require their quarterbacks to call protections and josh rosen had no idea how to identify mike linebacker yeah he had no idea how to set protections So it was like this extra layer, and it was really eye-opening because everybody who was the supporter of Josh Rosen pointed to he's pro-ready. Well, he's not pro-ready because he has very little experience with making calls and dictating calls at the line of scrimmage. So they get Rosen in, and you can tell like the steam's pouring out of his ears where there's so much thought process going on before the snap that it really detracts from his quality play after the snap. So... I expect we will see Josh Rosen plugged in somewhere in the middle six games of the season. So Miami will probably see Josh Rosen play behind another horrible offensive line somewhere between 10 and 8 games, maybe 12. Dolphins have a week five bye, come out and play Washington at home the following week in week six. That may, That's probably the earliest you'll, you will see Josh Rosen. Josh would have to absolutely blow the doors off to have the Dolphins change their mind. But if they don't and they take a quarterback at one, I don't necessarily see Miami moving on from Josh because they have a year invested in him. They give him the opportunity to get up to speed, if you will, on the things that he was deficient in that so many people didn't realize that he was. And then you have yourself a, a, I don't want to say an open competition, but, you know, you would have, common sense would have dictated you would have given the young guy a chance to be the guy this year. So not necessarily having to force yourself into playing a rookie quarterback next year either and having three years of control on Josh Rosen at a very economic rate, I could see them trying to to develop him and then trying to maximize his value in a trade situation. You know, Kyle, the point you make about Rosen and his sort of inability to ID the mic and things like that, 
Is that just a perfect example of just how hard it is for guys like you and me and everybody else that's trying to evaluate these players with that lack of access to information like that makes it just that much tougher to really figure out who is, for example, pro-ready, especially at the quarterback position. Of course. And then you, you look back to some of the narratives that existed around Josh, especially with his own coach, right? Yeah. Remember how much how much uh, Jim Mora had this glowing review of Sam Darnold and would have endorsed the Browns to take Sam Darnold over Josh Rosen, his own quarterback. And that really opened a lot of eyes. And we're saying, what the heck's going on here? And it makes sense once you get that perspective of Josh had three offensive coordinators at UCLA. Yep. He had two two offensive coordinators in Arizona and then one in Miami. So in, in five years, he's had six offensive coordinators. And the sixth one's the first one that's ever asked him to identify mics and set protections. That's mind-boggling. You never would have guessed that. But it is a perfect example of the kinds of contexts that are very difficult without having the inside information to be able to make and accurately forecast some of these variables that are below the surface for players. You know, we've talked a lot about sort of the future of Miami. Let's try to focus on the present for a second here. Week one games, often more about what you can do or who you are as a team. Mm-hmm. Rewatching that Baltimore-Miami game, I'm struggling to find out sort of what their offensive identity is right now. Is there an answer to that question? Well, I think coming into the season, my diagnosis of the Dolphins roster would have been the Dolphins are going to have to be a team that tries to play clock control, plays tough defense, uh, picks and chooses their spots vertically in the play-action passing game, but they try and play physical and reset the line of scrimmage. When you give up touchdowns on six of your first seven defensive possessions, you can't run the ball anymore. Right. So, I mean, to be fair, when they did try and run the ball, Baltimore beat them up there as well, too. Uh, but I think the Dolphins are going to be a team that, if they're able to play defense— uh, they will be much more competitive because they will try to possess the ball. And I know they like Kalen Balaj as a gap power concept runner. And, and I, I foresee him probably being the feature back in Miami in the long term because they re- those coaches really seem to like him. But that's where Miami is going to have to try and hang their hat. But they have to get better at defensive personnel and defensive matchups and adjustments if they're going to get in a position to be Uh, competitive and and try to feature that part of the offense. You know, Kyle, a guy that I liked when he came out, we saw him down at Mobile, tight end Mike Gisecki had a couple of catches in that game. Any hope that he's grown into life as an NFL tight end? Because we've seen that rookie season for tight ends sometimes be a struggle. Yeah, I'm not giving up on him. Um, He made a couple flashes in the preseason as well. Uh, This coaching staff seems to be a little bit more aware. Like Adam Gase last year used to, Gasecki, one out of every five snaps was in pass protection, mm. which Gasecki couldn't got block guys that are going to work at State Farm next year. Right. And you're going to ask him to block NFL defensive ends and pat like, okay, good luck with that. Uh, this this team is much more aware of letting him release from two point stances, and they'll condense him down close, but not put his hand in the dirt, or they'll flex him out into the slot and. I'm encouraged by some of the things that I saw, especially in the preseason for Mike, and, and the ball skills uh, are are still very evident. The biggest thing for Mike was he was very unphysical. Uh, he got knocked around a ton. He got knocked off his feet on his routes and releases a lot last year. Uh, he's added, I think, 15 pounds of muscle. So he's coming along well. I don't expect this year will be a big year for him either, but I do think he has a piece of the Dolphins receiving game in the future. 
And Kyle, switching gears slightly here, I know you and the men and women at the Draft Network are already deep into the 2020 class, a couple of weeks mm-hmm. into the college season. So give me a quarterback and a non-quarterback that you've been impressed with so far and tell me why you've been impressed and why that quarterback is Joe Burrow. Yeah, yeah. Joe Burrow put the nation on notice against yeah, Texas, he did. didn't he? He certainly oh, did, man. Oh, my goodness. He great. Uh, Joe Burrow specifically, the 3rd and 17th throw that he had where he had to climb up in the pocket in the yeah. traffic – was the ball that my mouth just dropped. I said, wow, that, yeah. that's not the same guy as last year. There's no chance. No. So I'm really excited. Now, I don't think Joe Burrow has the best physical skills. I think that's a very fair assessment to make. Uh, the sample size right now is very small. Uh, to be fair to, to the skepticism for Joe Burrow, Texas couldn't cover me out there running routes. Right. on Saturday night. So uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with Joe Burrow, but like Joe Burrow's probably going to be a darling for all-star games, yeah. and he's probably going to crush it in the interviews. He's got a great story for from getting recruited from Tom Herman at Ohio State and bouncing around the way that he has. Uh, I would like to point out one thing about Tua Tunga Viola real quick. Okay. The thing that impressed me impresses me the most is I think Steve Sarkeesian's presence there is going to do wonders for Tua's NFL evaluation. Uh, You're seeing a lot more um, quick game concepts, play action concepts, turning the back to the defense, um, rub concepts, crossers. Like this is not just this kind of freewheeling, cut it loose and let guys run underneath the football because they're better athletes that we saw at times with Alabama last year. Tunga Viola is much more of a traditional pro style passer and seeing him kind of master these concepts this year, thanks to Steve Sarkeesian, I think is going to be the tiebreaker for uh, maybe Justin Herbert having better physical tools, but to having better intangibles and then having this kind of experience and this kind of offense makes him a, a knockout at least early on. Yeah. And what about sort of a non quarterback that sort of excited you this so far in the process? I've really liked what I've seen from uh, Caleb on chase on, who is okay. a rush linebacker. He wears number 18 for LSU. If you're familiar with LSU, you know that 18 is a very yeah. prestigious number. Uh, he was supposed to have a big breakout year last year, but tore his ACL in the season opener against the uh, Miami Hurricanes. Uh, so he's kind of like a, a Josh Allen type hybrid defender where he can play coverage. He can rush the passer off the edge. He can set the run. He looks like a prototypical hybrid edge defender for today's NFL and and there's reps of him as a true freshman carrying running backs 30 40 yards downfield against wheel routes and so uh, a pretty special athlete and he's kind of coming into his own as a pass rusher as well so the tools are definitely there for a big explosive breakout year from Caleb on chase on number 18 for LSU Fantastic. We'll keep an eye on him. And of course, Joe Burrow. Kyle, let me get you out of here on this one. Obviously, Patriots coming to town this weekend. Miami has been a house of horrors for them in the past. We saw how that game ended last year. But what are some of your early expectations for this contest on Sunday? Uh, I think the Dolphins' depth in the back seven is going to be tested once again. I think the Patriots' uh, ability to weaponize the running backs in the passing game is going to severely hurt the Dolphins. And I think defensively, Miami's lack of uh, a right side of the offensive line and is really going to hurt them. I, I expect the Patriots to cover what is, I think, now an 18.5-point spread. Well, there you go, folks. You heard it here from Kyle Krabs about what you should look for on Sunday and, of course, throughout the college football season. And, folks, that will do it for today's show. I will be back after this game. 
um, sometime on Sunday evening. That will do it for episode 14 of the SCO Show. Until next time, friends, do please keep on blessing that Patriots reign down in Foxborough.